The topic I'd like to talk to you about today is guarding the flock of God. In a recent podcast uh, by the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching, an entire episode, interestingly enough, was devoted to uh, the role of the elder in the church as a sheepdog, as a guardian of the flock from predators that come from outside the church and predators that come within the church itself, and which is really where the greatest danger is. The concept of guarding the flock of God is maybe not the most positive topic to speak on from the scriptures, but it's not only necessary, but it yields wonderful results. And so that's our topic today, guarding the flock from 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. And this is our continuing effort from 1 Timothy 4, 5, and 6 to bolster our understanding of God's will for the church to be a church that the head, Jesus Christ, can say, well done, good and faithful church. And this is our attempt to prepare for our move to the White Lane facility as the, we would believe the Lord would want us to be faithful to Him. And once again, Paul sets his sights on the leadership of the church. To be quite honest with you, I am at times uncomfortable with how often Paul returns to leadership issues. And it's not private, it's public. This letter is for the whole church. Paul's final words at the end of 1 Timothy are, Grace be with you, plural, all of you. I honestly kind of wish he would lay off for a little while. Paul told Timothy that bad teachers are to be stopped. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. That leaders must teach out of love from a pure heart for God's people. Chapter 1, verse 5. That leaders must engage in the warfare that is eldership and pastoral ministry. Verse 18. 13 long and lofty verses in chapter 3 on the qualifications of leaders. We get a reminder to leaders that they're to lead the way to the whole church being the pillar and the foundation of the truth of the gospel. In chapter 3, verse 15, we're warned to stay away from leaders who teach asceticism, the legal avoidance of normal things like marriage and and food. In chapter 4, we're told to be trained for godliness and holiness all while teaching godliness to the flock of God. In chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, we're to make certain to gain the respect of the people through speech and love and faith and purity, all while commanding and teaching the word of God. And we're called to demonstrate the fruit of salvation and encourage others to do so. Chapter 4, verse 16, we're to be persistent. It's to be repeated. It's over and over and over again. In chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we're told how to correct and train every age group in the church. In chapter 5, verses 3 through 16, we're told how to organize ministry to widows and ministry by widows. And in chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, We're told what to do with faithful leaders and unfaithful leaders. And finally, in chapter 6, the leadership of the church gets to take a breath for two verses about how slaves are to behave with their masters. But immediately we get right back to Paul's high standard for the leaders in the church. And now, beginning in verse 3, at the end of verse 2 rather, for the first time in this much detail, Paul lists with horrifying specificity the terrible consequences in the church of the wrong men in leadership. Paul writes to Timothy about guarding the flock of God. We would say that the end of verse 2 really begins this section. And so we'll we'll begin at the uh, end of verse 2, chapter 6. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among peoples who are depraved, people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This morning, as part of our growing knowledge of how the church of Jesus Christ is a function, I'd like to walk through this text two times from two different angles. First, I'd like to give you a four-part recipe for an unguarded church. And then second, I'll give you a four-part recipe for a guarded church. So first, a four-part recipe for an unguarded church. And second, a four-part recipe for a guarded church. Just by way of introduction here, it is the role of the shepherds of the church to provide spiritual protection. The shepherding which is commanded in 1 Peter 5 verse 2 Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And we should be reminded as a church that this oversight is, is not so much talking about administrative oversight, such as making sure the electric bill is paid and approving annual budgets and those sorts of things which are necessary, but those are secondary. No, this is spiritual oversight. This is exercising spiritual shepherding for the protection of the church. And this protection has a range of intensity. It can range on one hand from gentle and repeated guiding of a brother caught in a transgression. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. It could go a little bit further to a more direct admonishment and, and even telling somebody they're being insubordinate or disorderly. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14 Paul says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, the disorderly, those who cause problems. Or it could go all the way to the far extreme of a one-step immediate action for doctrinal troublemakers. 1 Timothy 1.20 is an example of the Apostle Paul getting somebody out in one step. But the primary protection for the church is given through the preaching and teaching of truth that were rooted and grounded solely in the scriptures. And so that's always our baseline here. So first, I'd like to give you a, a four-part recipe for an unguarded church. We'll spend most of our time on this first part. And the first ingredient for this four-part recipe for an unguarded church, leaders who desire fresh innovation. Leaders who desire fresh innovation. We see this in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Now, as I mentioned at the end of verse 2, he says, teach and urge these things, meaning the things that, are, that he's about to say. And then Paul provides, beginning in verse 3, an if-then statement. The then portion, the result of the if, is implied in verse 4. You could easily add in the word then he is puffed up and so forth in verse 4. But with the if, Paul is warning against swerving off track in three different ways. First of all, teaching a different doctrine, meaning different than what's been passed on through the apostles, Christ's official representatives on earth whose teaching has been written in what we now have as the inspired books of the New Testament. And the second way they've been swerving off track is teaching contrary to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a grammatical debate here. Is this the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning the words he spoke, 
Or is it the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning the words about Christ? It doesn't matter. You get to the same truth either way. We don't have to make too much of this. The words spoken of Christ and the words which Christ spoke are both true. And in fact, in Romans 10, 17, all of Scripture is called the word of Christ. And so ultimately, the main point here is that Scripture is the only authority to know what the sound truth about Christ is. What are we talking about here? The person of Christ, the work of Christ, the nature of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, the future ministry of Christ. He's central to staying grounded in the true gospel. If you get off on Christ, you're off on the gospel. And if you're off on the gospel, you begin to deceive the masses. And then the third way they were going off track. These teachers were not teaching that which accords with godliness. Here's a really good clue that when bad doctrine is being taught, lives don't change. Lives don't change. Bad theology and going outside the bounds of Scripture will never produce true life-changing results. It won't happen. Only the truth can make you change for the better. As a matter of fact, it's not neutral. Taking a diet of that which is not true and eating this truth or lack of truth, so to speak, rather It's like spiritual poison. It misleads you. It misguides you. It misdirects you. Now, it's been some time since we were in 1 Timothy, and so I want to briefly review these innovations that the Ephesian church was being subjected to by some of her elders. So turn back a page or so to 1 Timothy 1. I want to show you what some of these were, some of these innovations. Chapter 1, verse 3. In his introduction here, Apostle Paul says to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse 6, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. So you have two times certain persons. Who are these certain persons? Well, there's two categories of these certain persons, both serious and one of them devastating. The first category of certain persons are those from the outside. Those from the outside. A few years earlier, Paul had warned the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20.29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock that new church members would come and they would, they would rise to prominence quickly. They would even become elders, per, perhaps. And they would have great sway and influence. And Paul calls them fierce wolves. This strongly suggests that Paul is openly saying that they're not true believers. They're unregenerate people who in reality hate God's flock. This is what happened in the churches of Galatia. Galatians 2.4, Paul exposes who he calls Quote, false brothers secretly brought in to undermine the gospel. They were brought in. By whom? By Satan. They were tools of Satan to disrupt the true gospel, disrupt the true church. This is one of the reasons we have a vigorous membership process. We want to guard the truth. And that we insist that as a member, if you're in any teaching role whatsoever, that you will teach according to our doctrinal statement. We're not saying that you're saved by believing our doctrinal statement. We're saying that you... Maintain unity by teaching only according to that. It's important. It's, it's huge. But there's a second category of certain persons, and this, this is very serious. Those from the inside. 
Those from the inside, Paul told the elders of Ephesus, Acts 20, 29, and 30, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Those are those from the outside. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. In other words, some of the very elders Paul was speaking to would be the ones in trouble in 1 Timothy. They're the culprits that Timothy would have to confront. And these certain persons were to not to teach any different doctrine. It means specifically any of a different kind. Not a similar kind, but a different category which rendered it false. Paul isn't talking about small differences in in theological nuances. Instead, these are perversions of the true gospel. And so Timothy's purpose in the church at Ephesus is to command those teaching not to teach those things anymore. In fact, in verse 20, if they won't quit... Paul gives two examples, Hymenaeus and Alexander, they're out. You either stop or you're out, and that's protecting the flock. Now, what was it that Timothy was warning against? Well, some have called this the Ephesian heresy. It's not very well defined. Really, you can't pinpoint a single belief or a set of beliefs which was directly opposing the gospel. And the the good thing about this is it has a glorious ambiguity which means that we can be on our guard against anything which contradicts sound teaching, the true gospel. But what we do know, that there were some characteristics of what was being taught. Some of the content problems being promulgated by the false teachers. I'm going to give you seven of these characteristics. Things that were being taught. The first characteristic is something opposed to the true gospel. Something opposed to the true gospel. Something besides grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, was being put forward. Anything different than that gospel is a false gospel. We don't get to make varieties. We know it was something exclusive. Something exclusive. 1 Timothy 6.20 O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Meaning that these teachers were claiming some sort of divine revelation or prophecy or it may, may have even been a form of early Gnosticism which emphasized these higher planes of knowledge that were the true measure of spirituality, supposedly. In other words, these teachers were likely claiming to know God in ways that others did not know Him or could not know Him. What did this create? An aura of super-spirituality. Oh, you know, that doesn't happen today. That happens all the time today. That characterizes the entire charismatic and Pentecostal movements. That I know more because God told me something. Not, like, not unlike many leaders today who claim to hear directly from God and then pass on the special knowledge to their people. And by the way, if you're really good at this and you happen to also uh, have some experience in marketing, you can make millions and millions of dollars fleecing God's people by simply saying, I heard something you don't know. So it's something opposed to the true gospel. It's something exclusive. There's a third characteristic is something irreverent. Chapter 6, verse 20 refers to irreverent babble. Chapter 4, verse 7 tells Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. It means pointless, worthless. It doesn't have a high and a holy nature. And one of the ways you can begin to identify false teaching is that it doesn't lead you to a more glorious view of God. It leads you to a more glorious view of man. Big clue. There's another characteristic, something that turns away from Scripture to another standard. 
2 Timothy 4, verse 4 warns of teachers in the church who, quote, will wander away from listening to the truth, or will turn away, rather, from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I'm going to give you some concrete examples here in a few minutes. We also know it was something that was anti-Gentile. It was anti-Gentile. It may be that Jewish men were preaching that one must become a Jew before becoming a Christian. We call these Judaizers. That's what they were called. 1 Timothy 2 goes against this, though. Paul devotes a long section to defending the gospel as being in Christ alone and for all who would believe. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, pray for your, and the, the implication here is your Gentile government leaders. This is unheard of for a Jew telling a Jew to pray for your Gentile leaders. Verses 3 and 4, it pleases God who desires all nations to be saved. Verses 5 and 6, there is one mediator, Jesus Christ, who is the ransom for sin for all who would believe. And the capper, in chapter 2, verse 7, Paul proclaims he's been appointed by God as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher to the Gentiles. This is an argument against an anti-Gentile sentiment. And then we also know that this, was, this false teaching was something focused on knowledge for its own sake. Knowledge just to have knowledge. The, the definition of spirituality is now what you know of the gaining of knowledge. Now, it is absolutely true. Paul affirms in 1 Timothy 3 that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. But he gives the purpose of the truth to Timothy. I hope to come to you. This is verse 14 of chapter 3. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. It leads to behavior. It leads to righteousness. The knowledge of the word of God is meant to be translated into a new mind, which gives new thoughts, which gives new words, which gives new deeds. And we know that whatever this different doctrine was, it was something that taught Christ's kingdom was here now not in the future, that it was here right now. 2 Timothy 2.18 speaks of some leaders in the Ephesian church, quote, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Two leaders in particular, Hymenaeus and Philetus, in 2 Timothy 2.17, were teaching some version of Christ's kingdom already being on earth, already being present, apparently believing that Some were already their resurrected selves. What does this give us? Huge problem. You have the haves and the have-nots in the church. You have those who really know and who are perfected and those who are not. Of course it's going to upset your faith if you think you're not among the resurrected. It It was a form of spiritual elitism. By the way, this shows us, contrary to those who say, teaching the end times doesn't make any difference. Actually, it's just the opposite. The proper teaching of prophecy and eschatology is very important to the church. So where were they messed up? Pretty much everywhere. The, The teachers in the church were off base in their soteriology, their understanding of salvation, their theology proper, their understanding of God, their bibliology, their understanding of the authority of Scripture, their ecclesiology, their understanding of the nature of the church, and their eschatology their understanding of the future plans of Christ. Now, in verse 4 of chapter 1, they were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. This is difficult to interpret because it's, it's kind of vague. 
but it does have a distinctly Jewish and Old Testament flavor to it, which gives us some clues. The most likely options concerning the myths would be made-up stories and legends about Old Testament characters, traditions not found in the text of Scripture, and yet these stories would, frankly, gain more traction than actual Scripture did. For example, the Jewish Book of Jubilees from the 2nd century B.C., contains numbers of legends about Old Testament characters, and many of these came to be believed on the level with what inspired Scripture said. The most likely options about the genealogies was that there were some meticulously trying to reconstruct a genealogy to establish someone's link to a particular tribe and to a particular family. And in particular, you could establish, this could establish you as part of the priesthood, and that you have now some sort of claim to spirituality that others don't have. And it would go something like this. Well, my uncle Simon's great-grandfather told a story once that his uncle Josiah mentioned once that their ancestor is Uziel, who was, of course, the younger brother of Amram, who was the father of Moses himself. So Moses is pretty much my cousin. I feel very close to him right now. The great thing about the vague nature of the myths and genealogies is that it simply warns us to beware of anything which could replace the truth of Scripture as a priority. Or worse, attempting to misuse Scripture to further a faulty theological system. The first part of the recipe for an unguarded church, leaders who desire fresh innovation, which violates the boundaries of Scripture. We can go back to 1 Timothy 6 now. There's a second ingredient to an unguarded church. Leaders who crave ego attention. Leaders who crave ego attention. Verse 4 says he is puffed up with conceit. This is one word in Greek which encompasses the concepts of self-worship. That's conceit of a big head being puffed up. In fact, it's from a root word which simply means smoky. We would think of it in terms of smoke and mirrors. There's no actual content, just trickiness. Attention is always being turned to him, not to the truth of Scripture. He's the arbiter of truth. He uses the Bible to supposedly verify what he believes. And often the goal of leaders who crave ego attention is to build in his people a sense of being like him. And so what kind of preaching do you get from the one who craves ego, who craves this attention? You get preaching about your self-worthiness about your self-satisfaction, a sense that God is approving of who you are without reference to sin, without reference to repentance. Or to go along with the popular phrase that's so big today, to believe, I am enough. That's exactly the opposite of the gospel. It's close. It is, I am not enough. That's the gospel. The self-appointed pastor of one of the largest congregations in the world, Stephen Furtick, the founder and pastor of Elevation Church, immensely gifted communicator, gifted leader. He can hold an audience's attention with a, uh, like a pro. He could read the dictionary and it would be interesting. But like many false teachers, he's eager to demonstrate his own self-love, his own self-promotion by encouraging his, belie- his people to believe in themselves. He teaches this, and this is a quote. Quote, following Jesus doesn't change you into something else. It reveals who you've been all along. That's exactly the opposite of what Scripture says. The Bible says in Romans 3, there is no one good, no, not one. This is contrary to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. 
Behold, the new has come. This is contrary to Jesus' proclamation that to be a follower of Christ, you must deny yourself, not affirm yourself. The gospel is not, wow, I'm better than I thought I was. The gospel is, I'm way worse than I thought I was. Speaking of Christ, Furtick denies the doctrine of the Trinity and he holds instead to modalism. Modalism says that God assumes the form of the Father, the form of the Son, and the form of the Holy Spirit, just not all at the same time. He teaches that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he changed forms into the Holy Spirit. He defines God as, quote, God is energy. God is a molecular structure that fills all in all. Why do thousands and thousands of people follow him? Because he strokes his own ego by making unverifiable claims out of thin air and he strokes the egos of unbelievers by redefining God, redefining the gospel into something that does not require repentance, but rather self-acceptance. And now you've got a so-called church filled with pop psychology experts who have decided that they're okay, I'm okay, you're okay. And of course that's attractive to the lost. What does Paul say is the reality? The reality is, is that kind of man is a man who is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He's ignorant of the truth. What should you try to learn from Stephen Furtick? Nothing except stay away. There's a third ingredient in the recipe for an unguarded church. Leaders who bring unhealthy discord. Leaders who bring unhealthy discord. What does this leader crave? He has an unhealthy craving. Literally, he has a sickness for something. He craves controversy for quarrels about words. There's a delight in this. There's a love for stirring up profitless arguments. A love for shock value that really has nothing to do with lovingly shepherding God's people. And look at the results of this sickness for controversy and quarrels about words as a result of the deterioration of the mind, of the ability to spiritually discern truth. Oh, what a horrible list. Envy. A selfish focus on others instead of on Christ. Dissension. Strife between people who are taking sides concerning innovative teaching which, which tickles the ears. Slander and evil suspicions. Beginning to make a moral assessment now of someone who doesn't believe what the false teacher says. Beginning to slander those who do teach the truth of Scripture for daring to quote-unquote name names. People ask me, why would you say Stephen Furtick's name? Because I don't want you being taken in by him. That simple. That's, that's not hard logic. You, you wouldn't tell your child who's five years old as you walk across the street, there is a danger, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Good luck. You wouldn't do that. You have this constant friction who are, of those who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. You have a total inability now to continue in sanctification, a total inability to think straight about the truth. Which, of course, definitely calls into question the person's salvation if they become that twisted. A love for controversy and quarrels and debates ultimately shows itself in moral deterioration. That the same man who loves to come out on top, loves to debate, loves to argue, his life will not be one that's pleasing to the Lord. I want to make a very, very important note here. I labeled this ingredient leaders who bring unhealthy discord. It is the duty of shepherds in the church to bring healthy discord. 
to affirm it and sometimes to start it. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 18, Paul says, In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, that for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must may be recognized. The Apostle Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, to preach the word in season and out of season. What does that mean? When it's popular and when it's not. When everybody wants to hear it and when nobody wants to hear it. Words associated with the preaching that Paul commands, reprove, rebuke, exhort. And how do you do this? With complete patience and teaching. Patience and teaching is not a phrase that means with meekness or with quietness. It means repeatedly, over and over and over again. Can I put it this way? One of the jobs of the shepherds of the church is to pick a fight with your sin and to encourage you to pick a fight with your sin. What happens when the shepherds won't provide healthy discord? The local church becomes more and more filled with people not seeking Christ-likeness, not seeking sound instruction, not seeking to gather together in humble worship. And eventually it becomes like the church at Sardis, to which Jesus issued a stern rebuke in Revelation 3. Beginning in verse 1, he says, To the angel, this is speaking of the human leadership of the church, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This is Jesus saying he's going to break into their church and wreck it if they don't repent because they're an empty shell. We are the alive church, but he said, but you're dead. I know the truth. There's a final ingredient in the recipe for an unguarded church. Leaders who prioritize seeking wealth. Leaders who prioritize seeking wealth. Makes me glad I drive a Hyundai. That makes it really easy to preach this part. The end of verse 5, these false leaders are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And this can be very confusing if we don't think about it for a moment. Godliness here is not speaking of biblical Christ-likeness in this verse. It's a form of godliness. What 2 Timothy 3 talks about having the appearance of godliness in verse 5, but denying its power, avoid such people. These are teachers who use their influence as a means to get great gain, taking advantage of people they teach to greatly increase their wealth or their power. That's the primary motivation. And just to be very clear, we don't take this out of context. There's nothing inherently wrong with wealth. I pray for all of you who are businessmen and women that that you would be very, very prosperous in your work because that goes to kingdom work. There's no biblical standard for too much. There's nothing inherently wrong with the double honor principle of 1 Timothy 5 of compensating the shepherds of the church. What this is speaking of, though, is heart motivation. What's the motivation for being a shepherd? What's the motivation for promoting your your new, weird, innovative teaching? Paul is speaking of the primary motive of using influence to leverage tremendous wealth by means of false teaching. I did a little search 
for pastors in America who live in the biggest houses. I thought that would be interesting. And there's not a, a godly square footage. It doesn't say, well, after 2,500, then you're in sin. There's none of that. But you know what? The top 25 biggest houses by pastors are all preaching the prosperity of the gospel. Every one of them. Every single one. What do you need a 40,000 square foot house for? I don't, I don't get that. This sin has hearkened all the way back to the early church. This is not a new thing. False teachers fleecing large groups of people specifically to gain wealth. Reminds us of what Solomon said poetically in Ecclesiastes 1.9. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. When did the prosperity gospel start? Pretty much at the early church. I would like to take just a few minutes and walk back through our text to see the recipe for a guarded church. We can't, we can't end on that negative. Recipe for a guarded church. And it's just the opposite. The first ingredient, leaders who guard the doctrine of the church. Leaders who guard the doctrine of the church. That's the top priority. The church as the pillar and the foundation of the truth can only be so when the leadership takes this duty seriously. When they are fearless in the face of preaching doctrine. That there's no text, there's no doctrine that we shy away from. You just preach it and let the chips fall. I'll tell you this, a preacher may not be fancy, he may not be innovative, he may not be creative, he might not even be particularly interesting. But if he's a leader who preserves the truth, then he's doing his duty. Sometimes newer believers will say, I don't want to hear things I've already heard before. That Paul told the church at Rome arguably the most mature church in the New Testament, that he was eager to preach what to them? The gospel. They knew the gospel better than anybody. He told them in Romans 1.15, I'm eager to come to you and preach the gospel to you. Why would he be eager to preach the gospel to a mature church? Because he knows a mature church wants to hear the gospel. That's why. 2 Timothy 1, 12 and 13, I love these verses because they give me uh, permission to repeat myself. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Translation, I will keep repeating truth until I die. In fact, this is one of the qualifications of a biblical elder. In Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's part of the job of the elder. Think about this one. If you're tempted to think, well, I, I just want to hear new things, or tempted to think that the preached word is solely for my entertainment, one of the purposes of hearing the truth of the word of God, even repeatedly, is simply because it gives God glory to repeat what is true about him. The modern hymn, Ancient Words, speaks of this exact truth. Holy words, long preserved for our walk in this world, they resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart. What does this say? It says it gives God pleasure. It gives God glory. It gives God honor to simply hear what is true about about him spoken aloud. And so if you're hearing something and thinking, If I say I'd like to preach to you today about assurance of salvation and you groan inwardly, I've known about assurance of salvation. Don't groan. Be thankful that God will be honored and glorified through his truth. 
Let it be that you're thrilled to hear the truth over and over again, that you never tire of the gospel, that you never tire of hearing that God is holy and mankind is not, that you never tire of hearing that because mankind is not holy, he sinned heinously against his creator and can't possibly avoid the rightful wrath of God. Never grow tired of hearing the solution that God in His mercy sent His Son Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of sin, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And never grow tired of hearing that every single person who repents and turns away from their allegiance to sin and instead turns toward Christ, by faith, every single one is justified, considered righteous. Every single one is sanctified, set apart for eternal communion with God. And every single one is glorified promised resurrection from the dead and eternal life in God's coming kingdom. You know who gets tired of hearing that? People who refuse to believe it. There's a second ingredient in the recipe for a guarded church. Leaders who sanctify the church. Leaders who sanctify the church. One of the most stunning statements the Apostle Paul ever makes demonstrates his pastoral concern for the off-track churches of Galatia. He says in Galatians 4.19, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He is in anguish to see Christ formed in them. The Apostle John said in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in what? The truth. This is the whole point of the church in many ways. This is our own theme verse. Colossians 1.28 Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Two simple ingredients. Proclaim Christ and proclaim maturity. Lead towards sanctification. This, this has nothing to do with the leader's ego. has nothing to do with personality or good looks or expensive wardrobes. One of the great joys for me of going to Shepherds Conference each year is getting to rub shoulders with faithful men of God from all over the world who are just quietly and faithfully doing the work of the ministry, the work of preaching the word. They have a determination to see Christ formed in their own churches. And what's so refreshing to me is to see the type of men that God most often uses in faithful local churches. Leaders who are completely not innovative at all They just open their Bibles and say, picking up where we left off last week, and they teach verse by verse, week after week after week, leaders who don't crave ego attention. To be quite honest with you, pastors are some of the goofiest looking people you've ever seen. You get a whole group of them together and you you go, wow, God can use anybody. (laughs) Because they have no craving to be like their culture. They have no craving to do anything except faithfully preach the word week after week after week. I've met men with terrible physical infirmities that in any other career they would say, well, it's time to retire and go on disability. I know men who physically drag their bodies to the pulpit every Sunday. I know men who have to be physically lifted onto the platform so that they may preach the word of God. Men who yearn to see their churches unified and healthy and growing in the Lord, content in Christ, enamored with the gospel. I think about the Apostle Paul, his critics said in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, 
but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. That's a nice way of saying he's very disappointing in person. In fact, the second century church leader wrote a document called the Acts of Paul. It's not authoritative, it's not scriptural, but he did give a, a, a best known physical description of Paul. He is, quote, a man of middling size. His hair was scanty and his legs were a little crooked and his knees were far apart. He had large eyes and his eyebrows met. (laughs) Paraphrase, short, bald, bow-legged, saucer-eyed with a unibrow. (laughs) You meet Paul in heaven, you kind of go, wow. But you see, Paul proved what he said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven: God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. There's a third ingredient in the recipe for a guarded church, leaders who work toward unity. Leaders who work toward unity. Unlike verse 4, a sick craving for controversy and quarrels which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction The shepherds are to guard the church by pushing toward unity. Now there's much that we could say about unity, but let me give you three parts to unity that will be helpful to remember. Three parts to unity that will be helpful to remember. First part is doctrinal unity. That's where it starts, doctrinal unity. Ephesians 4.13 commands that the shepherds of the church are to equip the saints with the word of God, quote, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. The unity of belief. It can't be that church members say, well, I just want to hear what I already believe. No, you need to hear the truth and change what you believe as you are convinced by Scripture. Churches that ordain elders with differing doctrinal positions are asking for trouble. And they hamstring the preachers in the church by making them teach only the the, the lowest common denominators. Instead of just preaching the truth of the text of Scripture. So there's doctrinal unity. There's a second part to unity, submission to authority. Submission to authority. First Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. There's doctrinal unity. There's submission to authority. And then, The third part to unity is personal humility. Personal humility. Philippians 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And all three elements are necessary and all three start with the leaders. The leaders are most concerned about doctrinal accuracy. The leaders model submission by submitting to Christ's will for the church and by submitting to one another. And they model personal humility. They're they're not having a flaring temper with one another. They're not being pugnacious at the leadership level. They're they're not having to have their way all the time. They're not eager to be served, but they're eager to serve. They're the chief slaves of the church. And leaders are to be willing to deal with anything that threatens the unity of the body. If I could put it this way, who else is going to do it? Who else is going to do it? There's one more ingredient to the recipe for a guarded church. Leaders who love the church. Leaders who love the church. Instead of being a leader who thinks that the ministry is a means of using people for his own gain. 
The Lord wants leaders who truly love the church and not just loving the concept in general of the church. That's ivory tower leadership, but actually loving the people that make up the church. Paul told the Roman church in Romans 1.11, he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. I, I long to see you, to shepherd you, to, to give you spiritual strength. He told the Philippian church in Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Did you catch that? The church is Paul's joy and crown, meaning his reward. That the church becomes the reward of the leaders who love her. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, Paul says this, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. This is phenomenal. This is Paul saying, and if I can... If I can use a little bit of sanctified imagination here, this is Paul saying something to the effect of, yeah, new Jerusalem will be great. New earth will be great. My personal reward, that's nice. But you know what I really want to show off? I want to show off the church. That as he's taught, and as he's preached, and preached, and preached, and prayed, and counseled, and instructed, and according to Acts 20, wept, and pleaded the gospel and pleaded Christ. That as he sees Christ's likeness formed in those under his care, he's thrilled with a heavenly joy. And he says, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? What is he saying? That he will boast of these churches to Christ himself. If you have little kids, you know what that's like. They, they make something and they want to come boast. Paul says, look at this one. The one who said he'd never come to faith. And here he is. Look at this one who sinned his way into total discipline of the Lord, yet humbled himself and grew strong in the faith. Look at this one who probably didn't say five words his whole life, but served as a deacon for 45 years in the church. Look at this one who gave up his earthly business to be about the church's business. Look at this woman who was married to an unbeliever for five decades and yet was loving and gentle and obedient to Christ and, and filled the glory of 1 Peter 3. Look at this man who prayed more than anyone ever knew. Look at this one who used to be a drunk, but now he's been filled with the Spirit of God. Look at this one who used to hate Christians, and now he's a pastor. Look at this one, look at this one, look at this one, look at this one. Paul is, is saying, I can hardly wait, and I'm going to boast about you. You are our glory and joy. Run away from a shepherd that doesn't seem like he likes you. We are growing as a church. We're moving to a new location. The leadership has noticed that we have lots of growing pains right now. We have lots of things. We're stepping on each other's toes here and there. I thought you were going to do that. I thought you were going to do that. Or worse, nine people doing the same thing. We're, we're working on it. We're on a pretty steep learning curve right now. But would you know this? Know this about your leadership. To a man, they desire to cook up this recipe for a guarded church. So pray for us. Pray for yourselves. And then together, we will continue to be a force for the gospel and a force for Christ. Amen? Let's do that together. Our Father, we come to you now thankful for these glorious truths. We're thankful for the word of God. 
when you want to hammer a point home, you do so infinitely greater in greater degrees than we would think necessary. But you know best. And so, Lord, we pray for us as a church. We pray for our, our little body here, Lord, that we would be effective, that we would be those that are unified. We would be those who love the gospel, who love Christ, and whose lives reflect that love. We pray for our, our leadership team, and, and as it grows and changes and kind of morphs here and there, Lord, we pray for your help. We pray for your mercy. We pray that we would be pleasing to you, that we would bend the knee to the head of the church, the true shepherd, the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our King, He is our Lord, and it's in His name we pray, amen.